Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I've entitled the message for today, Why You Should Pay the Preacher. So let me just preface that by saying a couple things. There aren't many people that get to stand and give an uninterrupted plea for a raise through a sound system, so I appreciate that opportunity. Now, honestly, I want to tell you that uh, as I go through this passage, I am not speaking about myself. I am amply provided for. I also want to say, if you're a visitor here today, I don't want you to go away saying, I knew it. All they talk about is money. We're in 1 Corinthians 9 because it follows 1 Corinthians 8, and we are going through 1 Corinthians verse by verse. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is answering some questions that the church at Corinth had posed to him, and chapters 8 to 10 fit together as a section. Paul is answering the question, should a Christian eat meat that has been offered to an idol? Can I, as a Christian, go to a pagan temple and have a T-bone steak knowing that that animal was slaughtered in a ceremony that was worshiping a pagan god? And Paul takes three chapters to answer that question. Chapter 8 is the explanation, chapter 9 is the illustration, and chapter 10 is the application. Now, you remember last week we looked at chapter 8. That's the explanation. And Paul says, yes, you are free to do it. It's perfectly all right to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But being right is not the bottom line. Your choice has to be guided by love. You see, you can eat meat sacrificed to an idol, or you can plug in there any other Christian liberty, You can do that, and your conscience says it's okay, and so it's right with you, but if someone sees you who has a weaker conscience, and they follow your example, and in the process, their conscience is defiled, and they stumble into sin, that you have really sinned against your brother by exercising your freedom. And so the principle is, Christian liberty is not just guided by our knowledge, it's guided by our love. And then chapter 9 is an illustration of that point, and the illustration is Paul. Paul says, yes, you have the right to do it, but there are times out of love when you are to let Were you being thankful for the sound system earlier, Ralph? Do we need to go to this one? Whatever. You take care of it. I'll keep talking. Paul is the illustration that sometimes we give up our rights out of love for others. And the illustration he's going to use in this chapter is his right to be supported by the Corinthian church. And he had given up that right. Now, it's interesting that Paul took that right with other churches. But when it came to the church at Corinth, he gave up that right with them because he didn't want to hinder their spiritual growth or hinder the gospel. And so Paul is a living illustration 
of surrendering a right out of love for someone else. And in setting up the illustration, Paul first establishes his right. And he's going to give six reasons in verses 1 to 14 why he ought to be supported by them. And I'm going to apply this to pastors, missionaries, campus ministers, all those who are in ministry. I I came across this description of the perfect pastor. He preaches 20 minutes and then sits down. He condemns sin but never steps on anybody's toes. He works from 8 in the morning until 10 at night, doing everything from preaching sermons to sweeping. He makes $400 per week and gives 100 a week to the church. Drives a late model car, buys lots of books, wears fine clothes, and has a nice family. He is tall on the short side, heavy set in a thin sort of way, and handsome. He has eyes of blue or brown and wears his hair parted in the middle. <laughs> Left side dark and straight, right side brown and wavy. He has a burning desire to work with youth and spends all his time with senior citizens. He smiles all the time while keeping a straight face because he has a keen sense of humor that finds him seriously dedicated. He makes 15 calls a day, spends all his time evangelizing non-members, and is always found in his study when he's needed. And the footnote is that unfortunately... This guy burned himself out and died at age 27. This is not the easiest job in the world. And there seem to be a lot of expectations for a person that gets accused of working only one day a week. You have to be teacher, healer, lawyer, judge, social worker, writer, editor, philosopher, entertainer, Salesman, manager, planner, visionary, leader, peacemaker, servant, counselor, scholar. It's a large role to fill for a guy who gets asked, what do you do between Monday and Saturday? And of course, in the midst of those roles and expectations, the pastor must stay sweet when people chide him for not doing his job correctly. And that can even happen at home. I heard about a pastor who came to the breakfast table with a cut on his cheek. His wife asked him what happened, and he said, well, he was concentrating on his sermon while shaving, and he cut his face. She said, well, maybe you should concentrate on your shaving and cut your sermons. (laughs) Tough crowd. On top of that, pastors are often underpaid, and George Barna's book, Pastors at Risk, one of the top four problems in pastors' marriages is income level. I've heard people jokingly say that it's the church's responsibility to keep pastors poor and humble. But I've never met a pastor who laughed at that joke. It is the church's responsibility to provide adequately for pastors. 
And Paul is going to give six reasons why in these verses. The first reason is it's a calling in verses 1 to 6. And in verse 1, Paul asks four questions. They all anticipate a positive answer. Am I not free? Yes. Am I not an apostle? Yes. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes. Are you not my work in the Lord? You see, the Corinthians were saying, we're free. We have liberty. We have rights. And so Paul says, don't you think I'm free? Don't you think I have rights? In fact, not only am I free as a Christian, but I have even further freedoms as an apostle, even further rights as an apostle. And of course, some would question the fact that Paul was an apostle, so he kind of defends that in this verse. He gives a couple things to verify his apostleship. Number one, he says, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? One of the qualifications of an apostle was that he had to see the risen Christ. Remember in Acts chapter 1 and verse 22 when they were choosing an apostle to replace Judas, the stipulation was that it must be someone who had become a witness of Christ's resurrection. And so Paul says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Paul saw him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. He saw him later, interestingly enough, in the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And he saw him in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 22. And so Paul verifies his apostleship by saying, I have seen the risen Christ. And then the second verification is the end of verse 1 where he says, Are you not my work in the Lord? You see, the Corinthian church was a verification that Paul was an apostle. They were the fruit of his labor. Because Paul was for the Lord, they were his work in the Lord. And then verse 2 goes on to say, If anyone supposes, I'm sorry, verse, chapter 9, verse 2, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. If others don't recognize that I'm an apostle, surely you do. The fact that you're saved, the fact that you're in Christ, the fact that you are born again, the fact that you are in the family of God, the fact that you are established as a church should be proof enough to you. In fact, Paul says you are the seal of my apostleship. And that day when they wanted to authenticate something, they put a seal on it. If you put a bag of beans on a boat, you put a seal on it. If you put a crate of widgets on there, you put your seal on it. If you send a letter, you put wax and you put your seal on that letter. A seal was the mark of authenticity. A seal said that what's under the seal is guaranteed to be genuine. So Paul says, the mark of my genuineness as an apostle, is you. You are a living seal. You see, the Corinthians were questioning Paul's credentials and Paul's calling, and Paul is essentially saying that in doing that, you're actually questioning your own spiritual validity. 
because the fact of what God has done in your lives is actually the seal of the reality of my calling as an apostle. So Paul says, I'm an apostle, it's verified, and I am free. I have rights. Now what rights did Paul have? Look at verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Now when Paul talks about his right to eat and drink, he's not talking about meat offered to idols, although that's true because he said he had that right in the previous chapter. What he's talking about is just general eating and drinking. He's saying, I have the right to have my food and drink provided for by you. And then he goes on in verse 5 to express another right. He says, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? As an apostle, Paul traveled a great deal. And he says, I have the right to marry and take a wife with me. And Paul says, the other apostles do it. The brothers of the Lord do it. Peter does it. And the idea is that they would not only support Paul, but they would support his wife as well. And so Paul says, I have a right to be supported by you, and if I wanted to, I could take along a wife, and you would have the responsibility to support her as well. Now I want you to notice some things in this verse. When Paul mentions taking a wife... What should she be, first of all? Believing wife. There is no concept in Scripture of marrying an unbeliever. You remember back in chapter 7 and verse 39, he says, when a woman lost her husband to death, she was free to marry only in the Lord. Important principle. Notice, secondly, this verse confirms a minister having an unemployed wife. Because Paul says, if I had a wife, I would be traveling a lot and I would be taking her along with me, which implies she wouldn't be working herself to support him and them. When I invite someone to come and speak here, especially if they're coming for a conference for the weekend or for several days... I always carefully invite him to bring his wife and his family because that is his right, and that's what this passage is teaching us. Then I also want you to notice that he mentions the brothers of Christ took their wives. Did you know that Jesus had brothers? If you look at Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, it names his brothers. And then I also want you to notice that Peter took his wife. Did you know that Peter was married? In Mark chapter 1, we're told that Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Now, you don't get a mother-in-law unless you're married. That's another one of the advantages of being single. You know, I I thought about this verse, and I thought, I would love to meet Mrs. Peter. She had to be the epitome of patience to deal with him. 
Paul says, I have the right to be supported by you and for you to support my wife if I wanted to take a wife. But, of course, he told us in chapter 7 he has no intention of doing that because he has the gift of celibacy. And then look at verse 6. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? And apparently Barnabas was in the same category as Paul in that he at times worked on the side to support his ministry. And so he asked the question, couldn't Barnabas and I exercise our right to do without working? And of course the answer is yes. Paul had the right to be supported by them. And so you should pay the preacher, number one, because of his calling. Number two, because it's common sense. Notice verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Anybody know any soldiers that have to buy their own uniforms, buy their own gun, pay for their own meals? Anybody know a soldier that has to moonlight on the side to support himself? Paul says when somebody's a soldier, they are provided for. It's common sense. And then he goes on in verse 7 and says, Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Whoever heard of a farmer who doesn't eat from his own crops? And then he goes on in verse 7 to say, Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? What dairy farmer doesn't drink milk? Shepherds are cared for out of their occupation. That's the way it always is. It's common sense. And so Paul is saying, with the servant of God, he ought to be cared for out of his occupation. So Paul says, I should receive support from you because it's my calling. Secondly, it's common sense. Thirdly, it's confirmed in Scripture. Notice verse 8. I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Now Paul says, am I just talking like a man? Am I just coming up with these ideas myself? Is this just something I'm coming up with off the top of my head? I heard about a fellow who went for a job interview. He was a fresh graduate with his MBA and he was sitting in front of the human resources director. At the end of the job interview, the HR director asked him what salary he would expect if he were hired. And the young man said, well, in the neighborhood of 100000 depending on the benefits package. And the HR director replied, well, what would you say to a benefits package of five paid weeks of vacation, 14 paid holidays, full medical and dental, a retirement fund with a 50% company match, and a company car, let's say a new red convertible BMW. The graduate sat up with his mouth agap and said, are you kidding? And he said, of course I am, but you started it. Paul says, am I just shooting off the top of my head? Am I just making up these things? And then notice what he says. Or does not the law also say these things? 
And then the answer in verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 25, 24. You say, well, what does this have to do with salary? Well, in that day, when they wanted to separate the grain from the husks, they would lay it on the threshing floor, and the threshing floor was a flat area with a post in the middle. They would tie an ox to the post, and that ox would go round and round, and he would trample down the grain and separate the husks from the grain. And then, of course, they would take it and throw it up on a breezy night, and the chaff would blow away. And the grain which was heavier would fall down and they would have what they really wanted. At times they even put a big flat stone behind that ox so that he would not only thresh with his feet but with that flat stone. And if you really want to see a frustrated ox, just put a muzzle around his mouth while he's walking on top of that grain. You see, the law says, if you're going to make that ox walk on that grain all day long, you need to let him stop once in a while and bend over and eat a few bites. And the principle is a man's sustenance ought to come out of his labor. And then look at the end of verse 9. He says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Is his whole point in Deuteronomy 25, 4, that we ought to take care of oxen? Should oxen read this passage and say, wait a minute, you know, we're going to form the oxen union. Now, let me say this, God is not anti-ox. Psalm 147, 9 says, he gives to the beast its food. Job 38.41 says, He prepares for the raven its nourishment. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us that the birds don't sow or reap, and yet our Father feeds them. But this statement is meant to apply to more than oxen. Look at verse 10. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written. You see, that passage is written for us. If an ox shouldn't be muzzled, why would you muzzle the servant of God? And then he goes on to say in that verse, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. A farmer plows in hope, hope for reward. He threshes in hope, hope of sharing the crop. And Paul's point is that ministers, missionaries, pastors ought to be able to labor with the anticipation that out of that labor will come the provision of their needs. And they shouldn't have to do something else in terms of work to provide for themselves. And if you need it made even clearer, look at verse 11. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If we sowed the things 
of the Spirit, if we sow life-transforming things, if we sow eternal things, Paul says, is it too much that we would expect material things? You see, if you have been blessed and helped in your spiritual life, if your family has been changed, if your whole life has been enriched, doesn't it make sense that those who worked so hard to sow those spiritual things in your life ought to reap some material things as well? That's his point. Yet you know, the tendency of the church has been to ignore this verse. There has been a mentality that pastors ought to just barely get by. We don't want to give them too much. We don't want to give them the best. And I think that's because there have been many who have abused this principle. There are many charlatans out there. There are many wolves out there. That's true. But this principle still stands. When a missionary comes home and we take him aside and say, Brother, I know you need a suit, and I've got one that I think will fit you. It's double-breasted with bell-bottoms. Not only that, but I've got some nice paisley ties that I think you'll really love. And you can wear them because the Zulus won't know the difference. And then we write it off as a tax deduction. Gift to missionary. Listen, if a missionary needs a suit, buy him a new suit. And if you think you're giving him too much, don't worry about that, because it's his responsibility then to be a steward of the things that God has given to him. Turn in your Bible just a second. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 9 and just turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2, speaking about the churches of Macedonia, Paul says that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They gave way over the budget. And then look at verse 5. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Now, what is the will of God? The will of God is that you first give yourself and then that you give liberally. After all, who was the most generous giver of all? God. He gave his son. And how much grace did he give you? All. How much mercy did he give you? All. How much inheritance did he give you? All. You are complete in him. You lack nothing pertaining to life and godliness. Look at verse 7. He says, you abound in everything. You abound in faith. You abound in utterance. You abound in knowledge. You abound in earnestness. You abound in love. And then he says, see that you abound in this gracious work also. And what is this gracious work? It's giving. Paul says, abound in giving. 
because you can't outgive God. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You can't outgive God. So Paul says, here's the reasons why I ought to be supported by you. Number one, it's a calling. Number two, it's common sense. Number three, it's confirmed in Scripture. Number four, it's consistent. Come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and look at verse 12. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Paul is saying, you've already set this precedent. They had supported others. They had supported Apollos. They had supported Peter. So surely Paul, who established the church there, should be and had the right to be supported by them as well. And then I'm going to skip the last half of verse 12 because we're going to come back to that next time. But let me move to the fifth reason, and that is it's customary in verse 13. Verse 13 says, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Those who served in in the temple were cared for. Read Numbers 18. Read Deuteronomy 18. The priests received portions of the offerings. The Levites received tithes from the people. And so Paul is saying, it's the pattern of God throughout the Old Testament. It's customary for this to happen. And then he gives a sixth reason, and that is it's commanded by Jesus in verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now you can look in the gospels and you won't find a quote quite like this. But Paul attributes this to Jesus saying those who preach the gospel should derive their living from preaching the gospel. And so if you didn't get any of the other reasons, it boils down to this, Jesus commanded you to do it. So Paul gives six reasons why he had a right to receive support from them. Six reasons to pay the pastor. Number one, it's a calling. Number two, it's common sense. Number three, it's confirmed in Scripture. Number four, it's consistent. Number five, it's customary. And number six, it's commanded by Jesus. And then, notice what he says in verse 15. I'll give you a little taste. Verse 15, but I have used none of these things. And then you go back to verse 12, and he says, nevertheless, we did not use this right. Paul is showing them an illustration that he he had a right to receive support from them, but he chose to give up that right out of love for them because he didn't want in any way to hinder their spiritual life. And so what we see here is that Paul is an illustration of the principle he established in chapter 8. Christian liberty is not just guided by knowledge. It's guided by love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage of scripture that's so practical in providing those who serve you 
in a full-time way. And Father, I pray that truly we would be that generous church that provides for those who serve us, that provides for those that we've sent out as missionaries, that provides for those that are serving you with their lives. And Father, I pray that as, as well as that today, we would, we would appreciate how many ways you've blessed us and how many ways you've enriched us in our individual lives and in our family lives and in our church life. And Father, that our appreciation truly would overflow in the reality of us first giving ourselves and then giving liberally back to you, realizing that we could never outgive our loving God. And we thank you in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.